Welcome to the College Student Success Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping college students with mental health issues set and achieve goals for themselves to get them where they want to be. I am your host, Derek Malinzek, and this is episode 55 of the podcast. And I have another good interview for you today, folks. I was looking back, and I think this is five interviews in the last six weeks. So I hope you are enjoying them, and I hope you're not like, oh, God, another interview, because I really enjoy doing them. I always get something out of them as well, and people will be bringing information that I have not gotten or learned, and you'll hear that in today's interview. I listen back, and I feel kind of dumb because it's like a few times in the interview today where I'm like, ah, oh, that's a great suggestion. I can't believe I didn't think of that, and then at the end, I'm like, well... I guess that's why I have experts on and interview them to get shit like this that I don't have. <laughs> so take that for what it's worth. Uh, really excited to bring you today's guest, Barbara Blacklock of the University of Minnesota, who is one of the premier uh, disability office resource coordinator um, experts kind of in the country. She runs one of the the better programs for students with disabilities of all kinds uh, in an effort to kind of... Uh, alleviate barriers that um, any kind of disability may present and um, barriers, remove barriers to participation in learning. So I really enjoyed doing this interview and I hope you guys get a lot out of it today. So real quick, we are entering week 10. Wow. Two thirds of the way done. And you guys like, you guys know how I like to kind of chunk the semester in thirds. So we're in week 10, which means we're two-thirds done. We have one-third less. Yes, I know math and fractions. <laughs> uh, so what does that mean? Uh, well, congrats if you've gotten this far and you're feeling good about how where you're at. You know, if you're, like, up to date for the most part, um, you are passing. Um, hopefully, for those of you that have higher aspirations than that, you are doing, you know, as well as you'd like to be doing. And if not... At least, hopefully, you know why you're not, why you're struggling. Because if you don't know why you're struggling at this point, um, that's a very difficult barrier to overcome in a short period of time. So I, you know, in terms of uh, my own progress, because my goal really for this semester on the College Student Success Podcast relates to being in school and is very attuned to the semester time frame. Uh, I'm going to talk about that when I uh, discuss our home exercise for this uh, for this week. Uh, before I get to that and before I get to the interview, I do want to bring back our topic of the day from Reddit, uh, college subreddit. Uh, so this one comes to us from... And this was a good one because it's it's general, but I haven't seen it in a lot in terms of being asked here. Uh, Shard Shank. <laughs> Great name, dude. Uh, so Shard Shank asks, how do you efficiently and effectively prepare for a PowerPoint presentation uh, from no idea to powerful? That's what they're looking for. So... Uh, there was only one comment so far, which was a good one. Talks about confidence, dressing nice, reviewing your material beforehand, and bringing no cards and keeping your eyes on the audience. All really good tips for any kind of presentation. I've tended to focus my tips more on PowerPoint in general. Um, but the overall biggest and best piece of advice I can give you 
when preparing for any kind of presentation, whether it's a PowerPoint one or one you're going to be giving in person or even just a more general like a roundtable talk or, you know, whatever it is that you're sort of leading a discussion about something, you always want to have an idea of what the quote unquote big idea is. My mentor, Pat, uh, not Amy, who you guys met last week, but another mentor of mine has done a lot of work with me in, in training me to be well prepared for trainings and presentations. And she's very big on this idea of having a big idea and being able to explain. And I think it's like eight words or less is what she says or seven in seven or eight words or less. I'll give you 10 since you guys uh, may be new to this in 10 words or less to be able to describe what you're trying to tell your audience. All right. So that really helps you focus in on what's important when you go about collecting information for your presentation, right? You can always go back and write this down, right? You know how I am, write everything down. But write this down, right? Big idea, and then write your seven, eight, nine, ten word description of what you're trying to do. You know, so let me give you an example. I did a presentation uh, for a professional conference around this time last year, and this was the first time I had ever used this process. And I remember my big idea was something along the lines of there are practical strategies to help people with cognitive deficits. You know, pretty basic. Uh, and But every time I was trying to st struggling on figuring out does this belong in this presentation or, you know, what's the impact or, or how much should I talk about this, I always went back to that big idea. So going into a, any kind of presentation, but a PowerPoint one as well, what's the big idea? Um, now, the rest of these are going to be more PowerPoint-focused suggestions. Um, the less content per slide, the better. You know, don't have just three words, but don't write fucking paragraphs and throw them up on PowerPoint slides, people. Um, if you were asked to write paragraphs, that should be in a paper. Um, PowerPoint, think about why it exists. It's to guide a presentation, right? It should be a guide. It should be a tool. It shouldn't be your crutch. And I'm not talking about students when I make this uh, observation. I'm actually talking more about um, professionals who've been training for a long time. Use PowerPoint like a goddamn crutch to basically, you know, rely on it and believe like, oh, if I wasn't here, I could just give them my PowerPoint and they'd get all the information. Well, you know, that's great. Then I don't need to waste my time at your speech. <laughs> um, I want to get something out of the speech. The PowerPoint should just kind of basically help me tell the story, you know. And you guys may not use this tip as much because you may have requirements for any kind of PowerPoint presentation that you submit for class that says you have to have, you know, certain types of content on there. But more and more, I find myself using it just to kind of keep time. You know, I show the agenda when I do it a training on PowerPoint. I'll like have bullet points with just very minimal amount of text and tell the story as I, you know, go through the bullet points. Um, that leads me to my next point. Don't read as you present. Uh, that's a big one. Consider why PowerPoint exists. I talked about that already. Sorry. Um, the bullet points on your presentation should act as a trigger for you to then, in effect, improv, improv, you know, improvise 
what you're going to say next, right? It shouldn't be written down, but you should have practiced uh, a few times, done a run through in front of a live audience, even if it's your mom or your roommate or your dog, who cares? Um, but it just like, once you say it out loud, everything you need to say, it'll kind of take hold in your brain and you'll be able to go back and be like, all right, next time I'll talk a little more here or I'll omit this part, but definitely do a run through. Uh, even if you don't have a live audience, do it in front of a mirror if you have to. Um, don't throw tons of clip art and images into your PowerPoint because you feel the need to fill up dead space. Uh, images should be there for a reason. You know, if it's a graph that supports what you're saying, great. That's another great re reason to use PowerPoint is to, to show really powerful kind of graphs or data sets uh, in a way that a paper does not do very attractively. Um, so have a reason for when you put any kind of image into your presentation. Um, when you are presenting, and this could be for um, narrated PowerPoints, which I actually have to do one in my, my class coming up, or just if you are doing a live presentation, it sounds simple, I know, but just be yourself. Uh, don't be a robot. If you're being recorded, know that the the camera does dull your enthusiasm just naturally. Um, so you have to kind of do a little more, be a little more energy filled when you are in front of the camera or just even if it's just talking, you're doing like background narration and you, they don't actually see your, your facial features, they'll hear the energy in your voice. Um, you need to kind of be a little more over the top than you think you need to be because the, it does, it kind of like, they say the camera adds 10 pounds or whatever. I don't know if I believe that shit, but the camera does and, and just the record any kind of recording does in my mind kind of dull the enthusiasm a little bit from where you were when you recorded it to now you're playing it back at a later date so kind of play up you your yourself and your personality uh and once again it doesn't um doesn't hurt to say one more time fucking practice people like don't just walk in there having done this an hour before and expect to nail it uh it's just not going to happen um, even more than practicing, if you could get it done a few days before it's due, your brain will sit with it and think about it even, you know, as you're not actively thinking about it. Um, that subconscious, you know, really does actually work. So hopefully you guys got some good tips for today on PowerPoint narration and presentation. Now we will get into today's podcast where we talk a lot about disability resources on college campuses. Take it away, Derek and Barb. Okay, I am here with a special interview. I'm going to be talking with Barbara Blacklock of the University of Minnesota. Thank you, Barbara, for coming on to uh, talk with us today. My pleasure. I am uh, really excited to talk to you today about disability resources for college students on campus. And uh, you are pretty familiar with that from understanding we've talked a little bit in the past. Um, and from talking to you recently um, and from other people who work in and around disability offices, it kind of seems like everybody got to working in a disability office on a college campus from someplace other than starting out there. <laughs> um, and, and it seems like people came there from all different, end up there from all different walks of life. So I'm interested to kind of uh, at least kind of get the students or the listeners uh, to kind of learn a little bit about you. Kind of how did you get in the field of helping people with disabilities uh, in college? 
Well, um, first of all, I did anticipate going in a different direction when I was an undergraduate. Um, I planned to go to law school, and that was in the late 70s, and um, there weren't many jobs for attorneys, and the thought to go into great debt to do something that there might not be many jobs, um, I thought that didn't make sense. So my first job out of undergraduate was I worked in one of the largest women's prisons in the country, which was outside of Detroit. And um, I met a lot of women who were very disadvantaged by others, or they had some pretty exceptional barriers that they encountered and um, were struggling. Um, they were also serving different kinds of sentences, whether it was um, shorter term or life sentences. But the thought of how to help these people and knowing that they were going to be there for a while. So I thought, boy, there must be some, um, some more information I need to be effective with this. And I learned about a rehab counseling program at Michigan State University. And in the late 70s and early 80s, there were a number of rehab counseling programs, graduate programs across the country. They were developed through federal grants. And those grants were actually offering stipends for people to go into that field because it was determined that there was a need in our country for individuals to have um, training on rehab counseling. So I started the program at Michigan State and I um, had to do a couple practicums, which I did at a county jail in another prison. And I decided that um, that probably wasn't the best setting for me. I was much more um, wanting to be more action focused and it led me to rethink my path um, I had to do a nine-month internship, and I heard about a rehab center in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I applied to that program. They had a program, they called it um, the Creative Living Program, and it was uh, primarily for individuals who had severe and persistent mental illness. And that's really how I got involved in working, in a sense, in rehab and access and um, working with people with mental illness. In the rehab center, there were also a number, um, they had a contract with a rehab facility that um, was a sort of um, a means of support for um, young adults who had spinal cord injuries. So there were individuals a lot of um, young people who were um, newly had become paralyzed and were wheelchair users and were having to kind of replan their life. But I was really focused on the individuals with mental illness that there just didn't seem to be as much information on how to support someone in having the most productive and fulfilling life. Um, and so that just really captured my interest. And um, I then was able to obtain a job at the University of Minnesota that was um, designed to provide access for clients of the State Volk Rehab Agency who are attending the University of Minnesota, which is a, a large 50,000 
student campus. And um, so my caseload was 480 people who had all different kinds of disabilities. Wow. So that was a number of decades ago. And, um, and as a result, I've stayed at the University of Minnesota. And uh, part of what has kept me here is the field has changed dramatically. Um, I've had a lot of opportunities in terms of um, being the project, project director of a couple grants. Um, and so I've um, really, every time I think, oh, I could go do something else, and I keep coming back to, um, this is a pretty exciting job for me. I, I have gotten to the point that I'm able to articulate that really what I'm concerned with is social justice and equity and ensuring that individuals have an equal opportunity and qualified individuals have an equal opportunity to participate and learn and demonstrate their knowledge. Yeah, that's a that's a great kind of introduction. Um, so that's the first time I've heard criminal justice to mental health to disability services, um, that added flair in there. Uh, that's really cool. I can identify with the uh, social justice type of um, motives, and I think that's part of what drives me to, to do the podcast a little bit. Uh, so you've been there several decades. That's really cool. What What's kept you there? I'd like to learn a little bit about that, a little bit more about that in terms of uh, the mental health space. Uh, I, I don't know if that's especially what you specialize in at Minnesota, or is it just more all disabilities at the disability office and kind of what keeps you there um, from from moving on? Well, I, as I said, I think one of the things is um, being a part of a group of people that have really had a focus on social justice. I, early on, was identified as the... Um, the person who had this most significant interest in mental health and mental health disabilities. And um, as a result, I have worked with hundreds of college-age students who have um, mental illness. Um, and I just have been, um, you know, I've learned so much and I, it's been very exciting to develop partnerships on campus that have enrich my job. Um, I, for the last 12 years, have, have led a provost-appointed committee on student mental health. This committee is really focused on how to raise awareness about student mental health on our campus, how to create an environment that promotes student mental health, to look at are there policies that are putting students with mental illness at a disadvantage, and if so, how to change those. And lastly, to um, because I am in such a big campus, it is like being in a small town. I mean, 50,000 students and then another 10,000 faculty. We um, currently, I, we just did our numbers not too long ago. Last year, we served 2,700 students on our campus. That means all those students uh, connected with our office, provided documentation, verification of a condition that 
is disabling to them and are using reasonable accommodations of that 2,700, 49% of those students said the primary condition that is impacting them as a student is a mental health disability. And that really is shocking to people because um, even 10 years ago, the largest uh, group of students that we were serving had learning disabilities and attention deficit disorder. And now those numbers in comparison are much smaller. Um, So it's really, we have a a very um, collaborative environment where the mental health clinic on campus is talking to students who are using their services. And when they start talking about barriers they're encountering, they directly refer students to us. So when somebody's psychiatrist says, I think you could really benefit by using that office, those students usually follow up with those referrals. Um, So it's, those are some of the things. The other is, um, as I said, the grant work. Um, I most frequently work with medical students and veterinary medicine students and Again, the largest group of students, um, types of disabilities are students with mental health disabilities. And, you know, these are groups of students that are um, very, very talented. They don't like to ask for help. Um, They feel like doing things differently makes them seem different or weaker. And part of my role is to help them kind of see this as a social justice issue and how they've been at a disadvantage. And once they begin using accommodations, they, I mean, the transformation is huge. And um, the level of academic success, the level of um, no longer carrying around as much shame and feeling like this is just a part of being human. It's not good or bad, it's just a human characteristic. And also focusing on how disability is really a form of diversity. And there's not many campuses that don't talk about how they want to attract a diverse student body with diverse perspectives. Well, that includes students with disabilities. And I remember a a nursing student who um, came into my office and had a, a long history of mental illness. She had been hospitalized for extensive periods of time. Um, And she was actually in the hospital at one point due to her bipolar disorder. And one of her faculty was an attending nurse on her floor and she wondered what to do. And we talked about how she could say to that nurse, you know, it's my understanding you're not in your role as a faculty and that this is confidential information. And The faculty member was very respectful of that. Not too long later, she was in a class and the class was talking about public health nursing. And she decided that she felt comfortable and said, you know, you all are talking about me five years ago. I was somebody who was homeless. I was somebody who was struggling to figure out what I needed and not knowing the resources. And she had people in the class come up to her afterwards and thank her for sharing that and how valuable her perception was. And that's what really excites me is that the diversity, the richness of our campus. um, And that's what keeps me in this business. Yeah, I agree. And we have a a larger 
population of people with with you know all kinds of disabling conditions but specifically mental health in our program too and i i find it, it invigorating as well um so i'm glad other people do um and you've talked about the one thing you mentioned i think was really important to highlight is the fact that it seems like disability offices across the country seem to be serving more people uh over the last decade plus of people uh that are identifying as having mental health conditions. And I, I specifically target you because I know your office is sort of at the forefront of disability offices in terms of the, the research and innovative practices. And I'm wondering what other trends you've noticed through your research, uh, through spending your time on, on your college campus uh, in terms of college students and mental health issues and disability services, have the problems changed over time? Uh, has any other trends emerged that, that you feel like might be helpful to talk about? Yeah, I think um, I can start back sort of in my beginning and working in disability resources. And one of the, the most painful student appointments that I would encounter with some frequency were young adults who had acquired a mental illness while they were in college. And so we're talking about in the 80s, in the 90s, and their illness, they didn't um, perhaps have access or didn't know where to turn for any kind of medical intervention. And they often destroyed their transcripts. Um, they left kind of abruptly and often had outstanding debt when they left. And then it would be, you know, anywhere from two to five years later, and they would come back and say, I'm ready to come back. And they would have had access to some treatment that was really effective. And they had this huge barrier to come back because they were had um, they were in default on student loans. The programs were like, why would we accept you back? You have a 1.9 GPA. And so that's when I got real excited about working with some collaborative partners on campus to really put together um, a step-by-step. -step. If you need to leave the university, and we just used it broadly for a health reason, but it was mostly students with mental illness, here's the way to do it so that you can come back more easily. And so I think that more and more schools have done that. And I, I think a positive thing is that I don't meet many people who had to leave school because of their mental illness. I meet people who might need to re reduce their course load or might need to take a semester off, but there aren't these huge gaps like there used to be. Um, I think another um, trend that I, um, I'm hoping will continue to get um, improve is that now that more students are with mental illness are accessing disability resources um, and they have they're actively involved in treatment some it's just medication some medication and therapy some just therapy and they start using accommodations and things are going well they feel really good they're being mm -hmm. successful their life is feeling good and they get this idea of, well, I should just go off my medication. I mean, I don't even need it anymore. And boom, they're like hit the pothole. And, um, 
you know, as a result, they can spiral and then they do have to leave school for a while. So I think often um, one of the things I try to do is support students to see not that you need to use accommodations forever, not that you need to be on medication forever, but to do it in consultation with your healthcare provider and do it very thoughtfully and carefully and maybe slowly taper off accommodations if that's something you want to do. But that is one of the big um, obstacles I see occurring. And I'm, you know, I'm happy to say I don't see it quite as often, but unfortunately we still see it. Um, the other thing, I, I, a trend is that it used to be students with mental illness didn't even think of disability resources as an option for them. And now many students who are using disability resources, um, we're seeing a trend of students who might meet with a mental health provider and think, oh, I don't really like that person, but I'm just gonna keep working with disability resources so they don't have a treatment plan. And then they start looking to disability resources to kind of be all things to them. Yeah. And yeah. so I, I think the, the message for students is to really think about your support network. And disability resources is just one piece of it. And our focus is on removing the barriers that put people at a disadvantage. And w we can't adjust the environment enough for someone who has an active illness and is not actively involved in treatment. It usually is not very effective. Yeah, that is uh, really good information and kind of segues nice into my next question because it does pertain to accommodations. And I think when a lot of people uh, think about disability services, that's one of the, the primary things that comes to mind in terms of the services they provide. So I'm wondering if you have any suggestions for students out there that might be considering requesting accommodations at their school, any tips or, or strategies you can share for, for students to get the most out of them? That's a great question. And I, I think that um, the first one is to think about what barriers am I encountering? Is it a barrier to take exams with 150 people in one classroom is a barrier the time of the exam in terms of if I'm all of a sudden having a flare-up of my symptoms I mean I had two calls from medical students this week who said I don't know what's going on I just can't even leave my house and I'm afraid that I might fail my clerkship because I just can't go and it's to be able to think about what are the barriers. And that was the focus of the conversation with that one person. Well, what are the barriers to leaving your house? And in this particular case, it was someone who um, needed to really reconnect with her uh, mental health provider. But, an, but thinking again about barriers and not, um, I can't do things. It's no, it, the problem isn't with the individual. The problem is in the environment they have to function in, that they have to be able to think quickly, take exams on cert certain days, take notes, might have to sit in a weird place in a classroom, might have a class in a building that they've actually associate with some trauma they've experienced. Those are barriers. 
And those are the things that we can create some adjustment to. Um, so I think that would be my first um, suggestion for a student to really think that through. And they might even want to talk with their mental health provider about it. If What are the barriers they're encountering? And to come in to a disability resource office, being able to articulate that. These are the things that are preventing me from being able to learn or demonstrate my knowledge. Um, the other suggestion would be is to know that there, this is an interactive process. This is not where you go into an office and just say, I want this and they give it to you or don't, but it's an interactive process. It's looking at what's reasonable. We don't want to compromise the standards of a program or uh, the standards of a school. We want to make sure for people who are in academic health center programs that there are not issues related to patient safety. I mean, we are thinking of all those things, but it's an interactive process and typically would involve the student, the disability resource provider, and in more complicated accommodations would usually need to involve the faculty. What's essential in their course? Is this accommodation reasonable in your course? And that's how we come to the conclusion of what are the reasonable accommodations. The other thing I would recommend is students um, remember that they have um, conditions that the symptoms are, could change. And so if their medication changes, their symptoms change, it'd be really appropriate to reach out to disability resources and say, you know, I've had some changes. I think we should touch base to figure out if I need some different kinds of accommodations. And of course, uh, students should be informing the disability resources if the accommodations aren't effective. You know, we this isn't a hard science. It uses, um, you know, a clear process and professional judgment, but we need to, um, our goal is to have effective accommodations. Yeah, I think that's really good, too, is to kind of stay in contact and to continue, continue to follow up because it's, it's probably good to hear, too, when things are going well. And it was like, you know, that was a really great, you know, accommodation that was made for me. It really helped me out. It probably helps you guys out to kind of better advise students in the future. Um, and then I know a lot of offices aren't as equipped as yours, and, and some of them are, are quite... Um, overburdened in terms of the amount of need across the campus uh, for the disability office versus the amount of resources that the school will provide. Um, and it, that could be a possibility for a student not getting what they, they feel they need or deserve from their disability office, or it could just be for, for any other reason. What, what advice would you give, or if you know of any options for people that have... Um, that don't feel they're getting what they they feel that they deserve or need and they've tried to communicate with the the resource coordinator so every campus in the country needs to have a 504 coordinator and that would or an ADA coordinator and that would be who they would file they would if if the disability resource person they didn't find helpful they would want to file a complaint with the ADA coordinator for that campus. 
Um, on our campus, a student would also file a complaint with the um, Office of Equal Opportunity and Affirmative Action. And so most campuses do have that type of office too. And then lastly, if um, would be to file a complaint with the Department of Justice. And that would then, um, the, our Office of Civil Rights, and they would then um, open an investigation. And so, you know, a lot of people think, oh my gosh, filing a complaint with the Office of Civil Rights, that would be so severe. But sometimes that's what it takes in order to get change. I mean, many of the people working in disability resource offices are not the one who, ones who set their budgets. <laughs> their budgets come from somebody else. And that disability resource um, office director may be tirelessly advocating for more funds, for more staff, to be able to um, use an interactive process. And they may keep getting turned down and it might be it takes a complaint filed by a student through the office of civil rights so i would encourage students to use their due process and to not see it as um that they're a problem um also when people are filing complaints with the office of civil rights they're going to be very concerned if there's anything that is perceived as retaliation. Yeah, I'm really glad you gave those resources out because that's an area I, I actually have little experience in, and, and I'm I think it's good that we empower students to um, you know to let others know when they feel like their needs are not being attuned or served because in probably in many other cases uh, others are not as well. So as we wrap up, I really appreciate all the um, information you've given, Barbara. I want to just talk a little bit about goals and goal achievements, since that's what our podcast is, is mainly on, focused on. Uh, interested in how you personally view goals when it comes to recovery from mental illness, because everybody sort of has their own, I think, perspective on the matter. So um, my approach is to break things down into pieces and to celebrate each accomplishment. And so, for example, if someone's goal is to get a degree in mechanical engineering and they are struggling with carrying a full, a full course load and they're worried that it'll take them too long if they reduce their course load, my focus is on, all right, what's your goal, which is to get that degree but what you're telling me is the load is unbearable and is triggering more symptoms of your illness. And so let's look at what would allow you to keep moving forward with that goal. And it might have to be at a different pace, but it would still be success and it would still be moving forward. So I think it's being aware of your longer term goal but also to be able to have a focus on movement and that there isn't any kind of prescribed movement that you have to do in achieving your goal. I just ran into a student that I've uh, worked with 15 years, or I guess it would be 15 years ago when she was in a master's program in nursing. And I ran into her in a coffee shop and she reintroduced herself and said, 
Barb, I finished my PhD and it took 10 years, but I did it. And it's like, yeah, you did it. Um, you know, it didn't matter that if it took her three years to get her doctorate or if it took her 10 years. Um, she has a number of different disability conditions and, you know, she often didn't have control over the symptoms that she did have to take leaves of absences. And, um, but it was just really exciting to, to see that the goal had been met. Um, I also think that everyone, um, you know, there's people who have all different kinds of expectations put on them. Um, like families might say, you know, you need to do this in four years or you're on your own. Well, um, you know, students, that may be the case, but there are ways for students to fund those, that extra time they might need. And the disability resource offices are good resources for talking that through. There are some scholarships that are just for students with mental health disabilities and we can connect students with those. They can, you know, search for those on the internet. Um, we have students who are, have um, obtained scholarships that say you have to be a full-time student, but due to their mental illness, they might need to be part-time for a semester or two. And we have found that those um, uh, organizations that provide the scholarships are willing to um, adjust the expectation as long as it's a, been determined a reasonable accommodation. Oh, that's really cool. I did not know that. I wouldn't have thought to advise people to kind of look for opportunities like that. So that's great. And a really good uh, example, you know, the story you told of, of meeting that uh, former student in the coffee shop. I love hearing stuff like that. Um, so this has been, I think, a really great conversation. Thank you so much, Barb, for coming on. One last question. Uh, I kind of ask everybody I interview to kind of uh, find out their perspectives or advice, uh, apart from the standard ones that I, I tend to hear people give in many situations. You know, if you're having trouble, get help early. Don't be afraid to reach out. I, I really think those are important. But I think we've spent a lot of time drumming, drumming the, the beat for those. I'm interested to know if you have any other advice that you'd give to college students with mental health issues, having spoken to hundreds over your career. Uh, that might be struggling to achieve goals that are, are really important to them and their success? Well, I would start with, um, and I often talk about this, which is um, because I work with a, a number of people who have had um, long-term histories of mental illness, and, um, and some of them are still carrying around a lot of shame and their own internalized stigma. And so I, I try to keep introducing the concept, would you feel that same way if you had diabetes or epilepsy or lupus? Um, those are chronic health conditions also, and they have episodic flare-ups. So to kind of move away from diagnostic information and look more at the symptoms, and if the symptoms are something that you're aware are episodic, that you literally, um, just as I described, one of the medical students who said, Barbara, I don't know why I can't leave the house. And so in that case, what I'm going to be focusing on with that young woman is to um, think for the future. 
let's together draft an email if that should ever happen again so that you have something on your your desktop that you would have an email that you would feel okay about sending to a faculty member this time she and I she did one sent it to me I gave her feedback then she sent it but I'd like her to have something available when that should come up and that all she has to do is say you know I I have an illness that's flared up and I'm not um, able to come in today I'll be seeing my health care provider um, at the end of the week and I'll be back in touch when I know more because she was so concerned I've got to tell him a date when I'll be back and she didn't have a date <laughs> so we had to you know really help her feel okay about giving just the essential information but to do it in a professional way so that would be a suggestion is that if students have a history and these kinds of things have come up before that they have some proactive thinking around how can I handle that in quote a professional way that's just the practice that will also be applicable in the workplace those are the emails that you're gonna have to send to your supervisor um, just because you're not doing things the way everybody else is doesn't mean you're incapable or you can't work I mean you have to be able to handle episodic flare-ups in a professional way so that would be an, another um, strategy the other thing would be to really get in touch with your strengths and <coughs> excuse me to be able to build on those and when you're feeling overwhelmed you know some people have a list of strengths just on their desktop so they can easily access that um, but to kind of get re and kind of refocus on one of my strengths is being able to write and so of all the things I need to do I should probably focus on the writing because that does come the easiest to me so being aware of those strengths so that you can use those when you hit obstacles and unexpected challenges um, I think those are kind of some of the the bigger things that come to mind for me as I think about over the years students I've worked with um, and also the the suggestion early on which was um, when things are going well that doesn't necessarily mean that's the time to stop seeing your mental health provider or taking your medication things might just be going well because you are doing those things one other um, strategy that many students are still kind of surprised that it's an option because they're so used to trying to follow the rules so for students who are student teaching um, who are in social work internships and um, nursing or medicine um, they feel like when they're in their clinical or their practicums that well they don't have time to see their mental health provider because their mental health provider is available between 8 and 5 and that's when they're busy so um, an accommodation that's reasonable if it's you know something that is being supported by the mental health provider is that the student would have release time to attend required medical appointments um, so that they're not without their support as they're dealing with very stressful kinds of things 
And um, that accommodation has worked really well for medical students. Um, I used to meet medical students who would say, oh, I can't see my therapist now for the next two years other than on breaks. And it's like, no, you can. And let's figure out how. Yeah, I think that these are all really great suggestions. And again, not stuff I would have thought about. So that's, I guess, why I have guests on. Um, (laughs) I really, really appreciate you coming on, Barb. And and the suggestions, I think, kind of come from like a normalizing angle, which I like, you know, to kind of think about it in terms of what a physical illness would look like and how the excuses are perfectly reasonable when you apply them there and the strengths focus is certainly something that we talk a lot about in, in our program and just being proactive, um, to kind of know that, you know, things might come up and to have, like you said, a, a, um, a sketched out thing of what you would say in the event that you needed to tell a professor you weren't going to be in class. Like, I just think that's such a great thing because it is something I know that, that, uh, students struggle with. It's like, Oh, what would I say? And, you know, how would I say it? And, you know, do I have to give a date? And, and I think the advice you've given is, is very much grounded in that, like, you would treat it just like any other illness. So right. really appreciate you coming on, Barb, today. Thank you so much for, uh, for your time. Okay, great. Thanks for inviting me. Okay, we are back. Hope you guys got something good out of today's interview. And let us talk about today's home exercise. So for the next week, explore your school's disability office as much as you feel comfortable in the next week. Uh, It couldn't just mean a simple web search to find out, you know, where it is on campus. And they might have a page up there about some things that they offer. Uh, You might give them a call and just uh, check in and you know, see what services they have available. Maybe you're struggling with something in particular and you want to get a second opinion. Uh, Or you can even go there, visit the place. You probably don't need an appointment if you just want to kind of collect some info. If you wanted to speak with somebody one-on-one, probably might be a good idea to call ahead of time. Every school that receives federal funding, I believe, should have its own Uh, on-campus disability office, no matter how small the school, and just about every school out there receives federal funding. So uh, it should be out there. It should be available on Google. If you are not, if you're not able to find it, uh, find your school's counseling services department. If they have one of those, call them. They'll know how to get you in touch with the disability office. Uh, Just want to give you a little bit of progress on my goal. So I am, uh, we're in week 10, and uh, I am also taking a class, as I mentioned, and my goal is to really do well in that class and feel good about going into the PhD program uh, that I am happy to report. I just submitted my application last week officially to enroll in the program. So I'm pretty excited. I hope I get in. I'm pretty sure I will since I work there and all. Um, But I just think back to where I was at, you know, about three years ago when I first tried this. And I thought it was my goal at the time. But looking back, I didn't really have everything in place. And I thought I did. And I ended up doing okay in the class. I didn't like fell out, but it was definitely a large warning sign afterwards. It's like, Derek, don't take another class in the spring. You're just not ready for this um, mentally, more than anything. 
Um, and three years later, I'm happy to report I'm feeling much better about it. You know, I'm enjoying the class, um, and I'm looking forward to taking the class I'm, I'm going to be signing up for next semester. So uh, I think from uh, from a goal attainment perspective, I feel really good about where I'm at, and I hope you guys do too. Uh, send me an email. Let me know how you're doing uh, two-thirds of the way in college student success podcast at gmail.com. So with that, I uh, just want to say have a great week. You know, we're into November, so there are five episodes of the podcast left. Uh, and then I'll be taking about uh, five or six week break and be coming back at you for the spring semester uh, right after Martin Luther King Day in 2017. Uh, so I have at least one more interview that I am going to really work my ass off to try and get. I've been trying to get this person for quite a while, and I think it's going to happen. But fingers crossed, that would be uh, my biggest interview of all time. Uh, don't want to give it away, but I have at least one interview, and then I have uh, my wrap-up show. The last, the last uh, episode, episode 60, will be just kind of a wrap-up on you know how we did this semester, goal progress, goal attainment, summarization. Um, but in between, if there's something that you want me to talk about, send me an email. Give me a suggestion. I uh, got some open spaces the next few weeks, which I'm sure I'll find something to fill it with. But if you have something that you're like, man, I can't believe he hasn't talked about that yet, uh, send it to me. I'd like to hear from you guys. I'm also trying to think of a um, some kind of service project to do in the last three or four weeks, where I uh, kind of like I've done in the in the past. We did uh, some fundraising for the Jed Foundation and Active Minds, and I've been trying to get you know views onto iTunes to kind of support the show and get more people to be able to find it. So I'd like to tie that in somehow. But um, yeah, so stay tuned for that as well. Really enjoy coming to you this week. Uh, Hope to hear from you guys. Hope to see you next week. Peace.